Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. We are glad you have joined us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Hope you had a great weekend. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And Jim, let's start with the good. And this isn't the type of good news that we uh, normally think of because it's confirmation of bad news, really. But the fact that we're getting closer to the truth is always a good thing. And it uh, very much focuses on an issue that you've been uh, tracking very, very carefully. And that's the origins of this particular strain of the coronavirus and whether or not it came from labs in China. And the answer seems to be yes. President Trump kind of cryptically referred to it in one of his press conferences last week. And now we've got more confirmation from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Here's how he answered the question on Sunday from ABC's Martha Raddatz. And Mr. Secretary, have you seen anything that gives you high confidence that it originated in that Wuhan lab? Martha, there's enormous evidence that that's where this began. Uh, we've said from the beginning that this was a virus that originated in Wuhan, China. We took a lot of grief for that uh, from the outset, but I think the whole world can see now. Remember, China has a history of infecting the world, and they have a history of running substandard laboratories. These are not the f first times that we've had a world exposed to viruses as a result of failures in a Chinese lab. Uh, and so while uh, the intelligence community continues to do its work, they should continue to do that and verify so that we are certain. I can tell you that there is a significant amount of evidence that this came from that laboratory in Wuhan. So he says there has to be more confirmation, but he's uh, very confident that, in fact, given China's history and what we know so far in this particular case, that this did, in fact, come from a Chinese lab. Uh, from what I've read, Jim, uh, intelligence officials are very firm in saying they believe it was accidentally released, not intentionally released. But there's more. This is the AP. They have uh, news from the Department of Homeland Security. U.S. officials believe China covered up the extent of the coronavirus and how contagious the disease is to stock up on medical supplies needed to respond to it, according to our intelligence documents. Chinese leaders intentionally concealed the severity of the pandemic from the world in early January, according to a four-page Department of Homeland Security intelligence report dated May 1st and obtained by the Associated Press. The revelation comes again as the Trump administration, including Mike Pompeo, have intensified their criticism. So, uh, Jim, uh, you had pointed out in the morning jolt day after day that the evidence seem to be leaning in this direction. And I don't know that we can officially say it. it is confirmed yet, but uh, more and more, this seems to be the case. Yeah, look, this is, I think a couple of weeks ago on the editor's podcast, I had put it at a, you know, 66%, two to one odds that this probably had something to do with the lab. Probably the simplest and easiest way of articulating it is that, look, if a really terrible new virus suddenly emerged somewhere in Atlanta, not far from the CDC, people would wonder if the CDC had something to do with it. If it happened in Frederick, Maryland, people would be wondering if Fort Detrick had something to do with this. Um, there are like four different questions that really get blurred together. And a lot of people like to vehemently deny one aspect and like to leave the impression that it rules out all other impressions. Uh, everything I have read, everything I have seen, everything I have studied, everyone I've talked to indicates this is not a bioweapon in the sense that it was not engineered altered genetically to be more dangerous. Uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons it doesn't make sense. And the general sense is that when you meddle with the DNA of something, uh, you leave fingerprints, so to speak. You leave something that would not look like something that is naturally occurring. 
everything indicates that this is a naturally occurring virus, but that doesn't mean it didn't necessarily come through a laboratory. By the way, it is worth noting that this lab, that, uh, bo both of the labs that were done working over there in Wuhan, China, both were doing something called uh, point of basically doing types of experiments to make viruses more virulent and to make them more deadly. And people might be thinking, oh my goodness, why are you doing this? This has to be a weapons program. Well, no, not necessarily. If you want people to be able to find cures and treatments and things like that for deadly viruses, they need to have deadly viruses to work with. So that in of itself is not necessarily a smoking gun. But when you get to the fact that they were doing it on coronaviruses in bats, uh, and the sheer number of complaints about the potential fears of safety concerns and the prevalence of lab accidents that have happened all around the world, including in these, some of the best institutions in the United States, and the fact that SARS was released twice from the Chinese Center for Disease Control in Beijing back in 2004. At minimum, this is something that you have to say, okay, there is a possibility of this. And I've been most frustrated by the people who insist that it's impossible. If they want to say they're, they're skeptical, they still like the, the wet market theory, they think that you know, it's a possibility that some farmer goes into a cave scraping up guano to use as fertilizer and catches the virus that way, okay, I can, I can see the possibility for that one. But when people start insisting it couldn't have happened in a lab, um, my then thought is, well, why are you so adamant about this? And very often it comes down to the Chinese wouldn't lie about something like this. Or alternately, the, the, you know, the, the uh, virologists and folks working at the Wuhan uh, Institute of Virology and the Wuhan Center for Disease Control are just too diligent and professional to let something like this happen. Well, if this can happen with some of the best doctors at the CDC and National Institutes of Health and other places like that, I don't think it's unthinkable that they could have human error. Um, it is also worth, I think, pretty much indisputable. Not only have we pointed out that the uh, health authorities in Wuhan and health authorities in China insisted it wasn't contagious. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security came out with a report that indicates China was buying up medical supplies and slowing the export of medical supplies in January when they were insisting this was not contagious and not that big a deal. If nothing else, at minimum, even if this is a complete natural occurrence, if it happened from somebody trying to eat pangolin at the, uh, at the, Wuhan, at the Huanan seafood market in Wuhan, and even under the most generous interpretation, China knew this was really bad, hid it from the world, didn't want to tell the world, allowed their citizens to keep flying all around the world while taking various steps to protect their people. That at minimum, um, I don't know if you want to characterize it as criminal or, or whatever it is, it's an action that should carry very severe consequences with the rest of the world. And I'm glad to see at least Pompeo and several U.S. government officials just speaking bluntly and honestly about this. Um, I really, really don't understand why anyone in the West would be trying to help China downplay the severity of what they did and how badly they uh, handled this. Oh, but downplay they are, Jim. You let into it perfectly because uh, Mike Pompeo tweeted out yesterday, China has a history of infecting the world and they have a history of running substandard laboratories. These are not the first times we've had a world exposed to viruses as a result of failures in a Chinese lab. Responding to that tweet, former Obama speechwriter and deputy national security advisor Ben Rhodes, who tweets out, this is really dangerous language, both in inciting bigotry against Asians, not sure how he got that out of that tweet, but and raising the risk of conflict with China. And then just half an hour ago on my phone, I get an alert from Politico. Trump is getting roasted on Chinese social media for his virus response, highlighting a broad verdict there. China outperformed while the U.S. disastrously faltered. Nice job spreading the propaganda, everybody. I can't imagine that a social media networks that are censored by the Chinese government <laughs> are saying that the Chinese government did a terrific job and the Trump administration did a bad one. There's an enormous amount of base stealing that goes on. That if you say 
the Chinese government in Beijing is a bunch of bastards who let this spread out into the world and you know, who ultimately have blood on their hands. There are a lot of people who want to say that you have somehow said everyone in China or that you've said everyone in Asia or you've somehow said Asian Americans, even though those are not the you know, synonymous terms, right? You know, the government of the Chinese nation is a subset of the people in China. And the idea that, you know, one attack on one is automatically attack on another. I mean, that's exactly what they want. I'm also being notified by ABC News, Greg, that Wuhan, where the coronavirus outbreak began, no longer has any patients hospitalized with COVID-19, China's state-run media organization Xinhua reported. Boy, I'm glad ABC News is here to tell me what the, chi- what, what the Chinese government claims. I mean, yeah. it reported, I think claims. Claims is okay. Yeah. It's, it's okay to let everyone know what the Chinese communist government is saying, but you don't have to give it any credibility. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, coronavirus here at home for our bad martini, because as you know, we've got uh, different states uh, opening up at different paces here. We talked about the controversy in Georgia and how Colorado's doing basically the same thing and not getting nearly as much controversy. Texas is opening up other states that haven't been hit very hard. Uh, compared to other states anyway, uh, are opening back up. But uh, Chicago, Illinois, not one of those places. And apparently there have been some coronavirus parties, Jim, and we're certainly not condoning getting dozens or hundreds of people together in confined spaces right now. It might not be the smartest thing, but uh, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, uh, not just urging people to rethink such things, she says, We're coming after you. Now, I've directed Superintendent Brown to order all police districts to give special attention to these parties. And this is how it's going to be. We will shut you down. We will cite you. And if we need to, we will arrest you and we will take you to jail. Period. There should be nothing unambiguous about that. Don't make us treat you like a criminal. But if you act like a criminal and you violate the law and you refuse to do what is necessary to save lives in the city in the middle of a pandemic, we will take you to jail, period. Uh, So there you go, Jim. Could be subtle, could be encouraging, maybe some other way to be a little bit firmer without having to go full jackboot here. But what do you think? It aligns very well with something I had uh, noticed earlier this morning uh, over at Axios, Mike Allen, who I, I generally you know, enjoy his reading, but they put together a list of the kind of the, the elected officials who are handling the coronavirus best. And on the list was Lori Lightfoot, the Chicago mayor, quote, she wins praise for focusing on the outbreak at the county jail and hammering the stay at home message. Well, I guess hammer is one way to put that. <laughs> um, and by the way, you know, great credit to her for the county jail. It's been all, you know, all too easy to forget about prisoners uh, who are not able to, to change their living arrangements uh, at risk for the virus. But you know, this, this salute to her kind of ignores the fact that back on April 11th, she had a haircut done. She had a stylist over and had you know, the stylist post photos on Facebook thank, you know, saying yeah, the pleasure of giving Mayor Lightfoot a hair trim. Okay. Now, apparently the stylist was wearing masks and gloves. People said, wait a second, wait a second, you've got the whole country, the whole city, the whole state really, you know, stay-to-home order, right? You've shut down salons and barbershops, right? The, the public service announcement, she, the mayor herself literally said, getting your roots done is not essential. And then she goes out and has her, you know, stylist do her hair. So the defense, which I think was even worse, even if you know, it's bad enough that you're the mayor and you decide, well, okay, she says, quote, I'm the public face of this city. I'm on national media and I'm out in the public eye. So is that the rule? That if, that if you're going to be on TV, if you're going to be in front of somebody, that's when you need to, you know, 
Um, there's more than a little bit of, you know, I'm special. The rules don't apply to me. I'm in charge. Don't you tell me what I can't do, but I can tell you what you're going to do. The second thing regarding these parties, look, it's a terrible idea to throw a big party right now. It's a terrible idea to gather in groups of more than 10. You probably want to minimize your interaction with people who are not your immediate family or who you haven't already been exposed to, um, like your, your roommates or housemates or something, you know, something like that. But I, I, the point I, I keep coming back to, and I, I'd say tearing my hair out, but it's just getting too long these days, Greg. We're, we're starting week eight of self-quarantine, lockdown, shelter in place, however you want to characterize it. Schools have been closed for eight weeks uh, in most of the country. That's a really long time. When the second wave of the influenza epidemic hit uh, Los Angeles back in 1918, they shut down for seven weeks. Okay, so we're now longer than people did for that one. By the way, some people said they opened up too early. So maybe we do need this, but I am not the least bit surprised that people are starting to chafe and that particularly as the weather gets nice, you're going to start seeing more and more people who are basically saying to heck with this. This is ridiculous, right? Um, I think if you give people a little bit of an outlet, you know, I think one of the, the thing people's, one of the theories people are floating around is, okay, pick another family, pick one other group and say, all right, you're our quarantine buddies. We can interact with you. You can interact with us. But we're not going to interact with the, the larger group as possible. I, I really feel like both officials and, and, and public health officials are kind of um, just, just being unrealistic if they think Americans are going to stay in their homes and uh, not interact with anybody for months and months at a time. And so, I, you know, kudos to her for her work on the prison stuff. But look, I, you know, one, she's clearly willing to go out and see the, the hairstylist and, you know, not uh, obey all the rules herself. She should not be surprised in the slightest when city residents after two months say, hey, you know what, this is getting ridiculous. I want to go out and do something. So, uh, yeah, you know, she's, she's, she's very much that uh, the principal in Breakfast Club tune, tune of you want, you want this quarantine longer? I can make this longer. It was just this weekend in Virginia as we had uh, very nice weather on Saturday and we had the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels fly over. And uh, the encouragement was stay at your home quarantine, but enjoy. And most people I know in Northern Virginia said, yeah, I'm going to enjoy and I'm not going to do it from home. So they went out to uh, stand along the, the route that was that was laid out there for the for the flyover. Uh, I did it, too. We, we kept, you know, distancing and so forth. But it was very casual thing. And I don't, as far as I know, there were no cops going around to, to bust people who were lining up where the, uh, the flight pattern was set up. So on the one hand, people did it responsibly. On the other hand, the police uh, didn't go crazy trying to make sure that people didn't leave their houses for kind of a cool moment. Well, I just want to point out, Greg, I want to thank the uh, Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds for managing to come what felt like right over our house <laughs> as I was in the bathroom. Thankfully, my sons were outside. They came. They, we, didn't, we didn't know it was coming. Um, and it was supposed to come around the other way. I guess we were too far north to see it. But apparently, they were ready to land on the roof, uh, judging by the sound of it. As tempted as I was to run out of my house, pants around my ankles, I chose not to do that. And thus, I missed them. Um, but you know, I, there's a very, there's a trend in online people. There are certain, there's a certain group of people who loves to make fun of the people on the beaches in Florida, uh, loves to make fun of any gathering in any public place in Texas or down South. But, um, you know, the gatherings of folks in New York city and people on the mall in, in Washington, DC, that didn't seem to bother them as much. I wonder why that is Greg. Oh, all right. Well, let's talk about another Chicago politician as we go to our crazy <laughs> martini here. And Jim, you and I have greatly enjoyed the Last Dance uh, documentary series that's playing out two hours at a time each Sunday evening on ESPN. It's a 10-part series. So last night got us through episode six. And it's the story 
of the last season of the Jordan era Chicago Bulls, but uh, I would say a, a majority of it is actually telling the story leading up to that season uh, mm-hmm. from uh, his childhood. And, and last night we got to the second and third world championships in 92 and 93 and sandwiched in between was the dream team, a little bit on Jordan's gambling. And then uh, there was a, a part last night where they're talking about his explosive endorsement opportunities. First of all, if you're an executive at Adidas today, you really don't feel good because that's who he wanted to <laughs> sign with. And they said, no, we're not really in a position to do that right now. So, and Jordan didn't want to go to Nike, but he's, his mom made him do the trip. And let's just say it kind of worked out well for both of them. And, <laughs> and uh, so then they talked about, you know, he did McDonald's and he, they showed the, the Gatorade commercial from back in the nineties, the, the be like Mike, I want to be like Mike. And then all of a sudden they say, well, he should have turned that into political activism like Muhammad Ali and, so then Barack Obama, who was in Chicago at the time and in the very beginning talked about how he couldn't afford tickets to the Bulls games in the Jordan era, all of a sudden pops back up in this series, along with a couple other sociologists or whatever, who are very disappointed that Mike didn't use his uh, opportunity to speak out for social justice issues, which was not really a thing at the time other than a very select few uh, athletes. And quite frankly, I would say it was a much better thing when athletes didn't get on their political soapboxes all the time. But of course, it was that Jordan needed to involved in democratic politics. They were specifically upset that he didn't endorse Harvey Gantt in the 1990 U.S. Senate race against Jesse Helms. And so what a, what a horrific missed opportunity. And they almost left the impression that because Jesse Helms won, that it was Jordan's fault because he didn't get involved. And my personal uh, favorite part of that whole sequence, Jim, was when Barack Obama put himself in the same category as Michael Jordan, saying that people expect more <laughs> out of certain people uh, when they rise in the African-American community. So that was a nice touch of humility on his part. But uh, the idea that athletes have to get involved in politics and the assumption is, is that if they do, they've got to get involved on the right side of these things, quote unquote, as ESPN and Barack Obama think, which would mean on the liberal side of things, is nauseating. And uh, while well, I'm fascinated by the whole series, and I was a Bulls fan big time back in the day, um, I love the fact that Jordan stayed out of it. He said he was working on his craft. And if that didn't inspire you, go find somebody who did. Good for him. Yeah. So there are a couple things to unpack here. You know, it was pretty clear that Obama was going to be one of the, the folks who was periodically popping up in this documentary. And I'm sure, you know, there are a decent number of listeners who were groaning at the thought of it. I was like, okay, you know, look, he's a former president of the United States. He was in Chicago during the time. He can probably, you know, offer some useful insights or, or no, that's fine. Okay. I'm not going to, you know, I, I have much less of a grievance against uh, Barack Obama, the sports fan, than I do against uh, Barack Obama, the former president and politician. But this was really an insufferable point to put in there. And, and Obama managed to put it in, a, you know, well, if only Michael had been as uh, sensitive to the, the needs of social justice as I was. Okay, great. Thank you. You were, you know. <laughs> um, but but there, uh, there's an aspect in it. First of all, a lot of it focused upon the comment that, was ele- that Michael Jordan said that said, hey, you know, when they asked him, he said, hey, Republicans buy sneakers too. Now, Jordan, but you could tell, you know, like they really wanted to hone in on this statement and to kind of force an apology from Jordan for this statement. He never quite apologized, but he basically said it was an off-the-cuff comment said to a bunch of other buddies and stuff like that. But like the entire like supposition of this section of the documentary was that Michael Jordan was wrong to say that. I guess he shouldn't care about, you know, not alienating Republican customers. The idea of saying, I don't want to be seen as a partisan figure was seen as a cardinal sin 
of Michael Jordan. And I thought it was, you know, very intriguing framing and kind of infuriating framing. But the other thing which I thought really kind of they glossed over, and I think it was very deliberate that they glossed over this. So first of all, people forget, uh, Harvey Gantt ran against Jesse Helms twice, okay? 1990, 1996. Greg, would you like to guess the margin of victory? Like, not just the margin of victory, let's say the margin of votes between Jesse Helms and Harvey Gantt in 1990. I'm guessing it was pretty wide. 110,000. That's pretty significant. Right? So it's, it's not like this is, oh, Florida 2000, you know, oh, if only, but, but also by the way, Michael Jordan noted that he sent him a donation, right? So it's not like he totally ignored it. He just decided he didn't want to get involved and tape a commercial for him or something like that. 1996, there's a rematch and the margin is probably close to 180,000 votes. So let the, I was trying to think about, okay, what's another good comparison of this? And I would just put this to you, Greg, and to listeners, and I think this is a pretty safe supposition. If Taylor Swift could not sway a Tennessee Senate <laughs> race in 2018 one bit, then I don't think it's very likely that Michael Jordan would have been able to make up a hundred thousand votes in North Carolina, particularly in 1990 and 1996. It was a pretty darn conservative uh, state back then. Uh, could he have boosted and turned out? I suppose, you know, would, you know, would Gant have loved to have had, you know, a Michael Jordan and I think you should vote. I'm sure it would have been great, but I don't think it would have been enough to make the difference. And the whole idea that, you know, Michael Jordan, you know, skipped, you know, chose not to take, uh, to take out Jesse Helms from the Senate when he had the chance. That's really not an accurate reading of the race and the circumstances. And I do kind of believe that there's this, you know, convenient, you know, a little bit of convenient scapegoating of, of Michael Jordan going on there. But the other thing is just this idea that I mean, there was a time in this, like, Greg, one of the reasons I got into politics was because pe- lots of other people weren't. <laughs> Normal people were not into politics. You know, this was a uh, you were there was something a little weird about you. Can we kind of wrong with you? Michael Jordan just wanted to be the very best athlete that he could be, and it, you know, as this documentary series makes very clear, he had this incredible near infinite competitive streak. But politics just didn't do it for him. And the idea, the the context of the Obama comments and the sociologists quoted, and really pretty much the whole. You know, so it was not like this was the a huge chunk. Probably about five to ten minutes of this documentary focuses on this. But this is really seen as a flaw of Michael Jordan. Where and I think it's um, it says a great deal about the time. It says a great deal about our, our current woke standards. Um, that the idea that Michael Jordan just didn't want to get involved in partisan politics is seen as some sort of moral failing on his part. When in fact, up until very recently, that was the normal default setting in most Americans. Hey, Michael Jordan, you're still one of the greatest ever. Um, as I'm watching this, I'm looking at this and saying, man, you know, LeBron James is really, really good at basketball. But I have not seen LeBron James nearly as many times say, that physically should not be impossible check that man for a jetpack or some other device <laughs> that is causing him to defy gravity because this looks like it's been, this footage has been altered. No man can move like that. No, it's absolutely incredible. And of course, Jesse Helms was a conservative champion. Uh, certainly not going to defend all of his uh, racial positions over the years, but uh, a big issue in 1990, I remember, because I was in high school at the time and I was weird because I followed politics then, is that uh, he was opposed to affirmative action. But he's also a pro-life champion and he was a, a huge factor in uh, reviving Reagan's 76 campaign. So without Jesse Helms, you probably don't get Reagan. But uh, Jim, yeah, this is a fascinating documentary to watch as, uh, as a guy who was obsessed with the Bulls and obviously a Chicago sports fan. Uh, loved it at the time. And, and knowing that certain moments are coming is uh, absolutely delicious. But learning the things that you didn't know, basically how anything that Jerry Krause, who was the general manager of this team, uh, liked, Michael Jordan hated. Because ever since 1986, when Jordan was in his second year and broke his foot, and Jerry Krause wanted to limit his minutes when he came back, Jordan hated Jerry Krause. And so last night, 
you find out uh, when they're in Barcelona with the Olympics, well, uh, this guy from Yugoslavia that uh, Jerry Krause wants to make a bull eventually, Tony Kukoc. So Jordan just decides he needs to destroy this guy <laughs> to humiliate Jerry Krause. Then in the 93 finals, uh, Dan Marley of the Suns is a guy that Jerry Krause thinks he might like to get once that contract in Phoenix is over. Jordan makes it his mission to destroy him. And so I saw one tweet last night that said, Jerry Krause says he likes sunshine. Michael Jordan would find a way to destroy the sun. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, when this, uh, before this came out, Jordan had some sort of statement interview where he said he didn't think, you know, after this documentary, people might not see him as such a good guy anymore. And I don't think it's quite having that effect. I, I do mention that, you know, that near, maybe, maybe like a near psychotic, you know, competitive streak. Um, but, you know, this, this is a story that clearly has its hero and clearly has its villain. Um, and I don't, I haven't, I haven't seen much of Kraus today, uh, in the footage yet, Greg, but, um, yeah, am I correct a couple that, years ago? <laughs> oh, okay. So here's the, if Kraus was still alive, if we could somehow get Jerry Kraus of the mid 1990s cloned, I want him to play the penguin in the next Batman movie. <laughs> he just seems like a big, wah, 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 wah. I'm going to destroy everything that's good. Wah, 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 wah. Um, yeah, they very clearly have decided who, who the bad guy is. And he lives down to the reputation on almost all of this. It's kind of fascinating how much, you know, Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen just decided, oh, he thinks this guy's good? We're going to do everything possible to <laughs> leave, just leave him a red streak on the court. <laughs> you feel a little bad for him. He, goodness, he did go on to have a fairly successful NBA career, didn't he? He did, yeah, okay, so. uh, uh, with the Bulls. And they, he was part of the second three-peat. That was coach, by the way, not Dan Marley. But uh, yeah, fun to watch. We'll see where the uh, last four hours go from here. But a uh, lot of great, lot of great memories of watching those old Bulls games. So uh, fun, fun to uh, to see, and it's uh, it's good entertainment when there's no live sports right now. So uh, also a quick uh, sad to see Jim, uh, former Dolphins coach Don Shula, winning his NFL coach in history, passed away at the age of ninety. Uh, I know he was in the division, so a rival, but uh, definite credit to the league. He is. Look, is winning, winningest coach of all time, um, known for, you know, having many years of success. I would note that he was on the staff that, of the Colts that lost the uh, Super Bowl to the Jets. <laughs> I just want to stick that little lemon juice in the paper cut. Uh, but no, Don Shula, in addition to being an excellent coach, boy, did he have a good steakhouse. So, you know, that, that was where I could find my common ground with, with Don Shula. Rest <laughs> in peace. Sounds good. Jim, have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Give us a kind review with five stars. Also get us on those home devices by saying play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.